This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 5. And by the latter half of the 1870s, face of that violence, he's like, he's ready to say, we got to find another path. There has to be another way forward. This just isn't going to work. Because even if, if we can get the numbers to make real changes, even if we can convince the Republican Party to take us seriously, we're going to end up facing violence and there's going to be some, you know, some manner of, of extra legal violence that's going to stop us from exercising the franchise fully. When we left off, black men got the vote with the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870. But did they really get the vote? And more importantly, did it matter? It's 1870 in Baltimore. The 15th Amendment meant that nearly 40,000 new black voters could be added to the rolls, nearly all of them guaranteed to vote Republican. Democrats had an easy choice in the matter and voted against ratification. And with a majority in the state, they won. Still, 29 other states voted to ratify the 15th Amendment, which was enough to make it law. Baltimore, home to the largest population of African-Americans in the country, hosted a large celebration of the victory. There was a parade. There were commemorative toys. Frederick Douglass gave a speech. Then they got to work. Over just three days in the counties and six days in Baltimore, Maryland Republicans registered 35,000 out of the 39,000 newly eligible voters before the 1870 primary. For context, there were 131,000 registered voters in the whole state, so this was a lot of new voters. On the eve of the first election when black men could vote, federal troops moved into Maryland, stationed strategically throughout the state in case of unrest. But the election proceeded peacefully. Though voter turnout was high, it wasn't enough to change anything. Democrats still had a strong majority, so voters didn't elect any Republicans to Congress in 1870. While the state would remain solidly Democratic for the next 25 years, Baltimore was a different story. After the 1870 election, Democrats did everything in their power to stop African Americans from voting. They paid them to stay home from the polls in 1871. They also engaged in other fraud to suppress the vote, like tampering with ballots to confuse voters. Still, Black voters persisted. In the 1875 city election in Baltimore, an additional 10,000 voters turned out, and Republicans typically in the minority, won half of the city council seats. All of a sudden, the Democrats faced a true threat. With the state election coming up, they set their sights on preserving their power by any means necessary. The New York Times described election night as a Saturnalia of bloodshed. Democratic mobs roamed the streets, violently attacking voters. Police arrested more than 200 people across the city mostly for disorderly conduct. But more shockingly, at least 200 Republican voters were shot, stabbed, or beaten. A headline in the New York Times the next day read, the Republican and reform ticket defeated by fraud and terrorism in Baltimore. There were reports of targeted violence in every African-American ward of the city. Black voters were attacked and shot as they waited in line at the polls. Police reportedly stood by and laughed. The organized onslaught was led by a powerful political group the ring. It's somewhat surprising that it wasn't more widespread, but I think the, the reason it wasn't as widespread is, was because that African-Americans in the Republican Party just couldn't cobble together the numbers to be a real electoral threat. You still see violence against African-Americans during this period going to the polls. And this is, as 
throughout the South in the 1870s as, as the nation really kind of retreats from the commitments that it had made during Reconstruction, you see this violence taking place in locales across the South. This is the story of what happened next. It's the story of a different path, not through the ballot box, but through the church, the press, the courtroom, and the wallet. It's the story of the skillful drumbeat of legal action that chipped away at the idea of separate but equal. It's about a community of fearless leaders with one family at the center. He was born in 1840. I know that on Christmas Day. That's something that was drilled into our heads that he was born 20, December 25th, 1840, and that he wanted to live to be 100. John H. Murphy Sr. was born on Christmas Day in 1840 in Baltimore. His father Benjamin and mother Susan were enslaved, and so was he. We really don't know much about his early life, but we know he earned his freedom by fighting in the Civil War. He joined the 30th Regiment of Maryland's Colored Volunteers in March 1864. He fought in General Grant's Wilderness Campaign and served under William Tecumseh Sherman in North Carolina in 1865. His wartime service earned him his freedom. The Maryland Emancipation Act of 1863 freed slaves who served in the Union Army. And he talks specifically about how that war was a real war for freedom, for emancipation. Um, so that was a really interesting piece of information about him um, that kind of gave context to his life story. That's Savannah Wood, John Murphy Sr.'s great-great-granddaughter. When he returned from the war, John Murphy met a young woman, Martha Howard, who was caring for his sick mother. She was the daughter of a successful farmer, and he was in love. He was penniless, but he promised her a world that would be gay with the laughter of children and happy because he worshipped her. John married Martha Howard in 1868. They had 10 children. He was not exaggerating about filling the home with laughing kids. He took over his father's whitewashing business, and when the invention of wallpaper made whitewashing obsolete, he worked as a janitor and a porter to make ends meet. It's time for our first monumental moment, Reconstruction and Jim Crow. In 1866, Congress passes the Civil Rights Bill. It says that all persons born in the United States, with the exception of American Indians, don't even get me started, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. The legislation grants all citizens the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property. In Baltimore, Black Baltimoreans and their Quaker allies have banded together to create schools for Black children and a teacher training program for Black teachers. Things are looking up. There's a, a tendency for people to think that that segregation somehow kind of naturally followed slavery. And the reality of it is that's not the case. This is Dennis Halpin. You heard him at the beginning of this episode. He's an historian at Virginia Tech University. So when we look at, if we look at slavery as an institution, right, African-Americans and white people lived near each other. They ate near each other. They, they worked. African-Americans, of course, were forced to work as slaves, but they worked near each other. So this idea of kind of separate white and black worlds didn't exist. It was a, a set of decisions that white Americans made in this period. And it, it doesn't happen all at once. Everything still hinges on who holds office. Across the South, 1,500 African-Americans were elected to office during Reconstruction. You might wonder, how many African-Americans were elected in Baltimore City during the 10 years of Reconstruction? Zip, zero, zilch, not a single one. 
talking about places like Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina and Mississippi. The North comes down during Reconstruction and enforces, however imperfectly, Black rights. And so we see during this period in, in states that we don't think of as being very racially progressive, like those states in the Deep South, a number of African-Americans that run for local office, that run for state office. We have African-Americans being elected to the House of Representatives in those states. Maryland is different. Maryland, because it did not secede, does not fall under the jurisdiction of Reconstruction in the same way as some of those other states I mentioned in the Deep South. It's not that Reconstruction didn't touch Maryland and Baltimore, but the federal government did not oversee Maryland's Reconstruction. And so what happens with Maryland and, and Baltimore is that very quickly, the Democratic Party, which was the party of white supremacy in the, in the 1860s, very quickly regains power. And it turns out that the Republican Party, who truly was opposed to slavery and truly wanted all those additional votes for their candidates, wasn't actually interested in advancing civil rights or supporting black candidates either. They were like, you can live in your own house and pay your own bills and you should definitely vote for us, but we don't really need to hear from you otherwise. They rarely nominated black people to decision-making roles in the party or gave them patronage jobs, the kind of jobs regularly given to good supporters. So despite sort of having the right to vote, African-Americans were on their own with very little recourse. This is when we really start to see the rise of black codes and Jim Crow laws and just overtly racist policies, even when the law didn't require it. Rail companies began mandating separate accommodations for whites and blacks. Trolleys often refused to transport black people at all. Remember Francis Harper and Harriet Tubman? Restaurants did the same. Labor unions decided that black people couldn't hold union jobs, excluding them from pretty much every industry. Let's say you did find a job. Your white coworkers could easily just go on strike to demand you were fired, and they often did. Baltimore's black schools, a jewel in the African-American crown, were taken over by Baltimore City. And by 1875, every last black teacher was fired. 1875. That's the same year that 200 African-American voters were stabbed, shot, and beaten at the polls. You might say, but Sarah, what about the Civil Rights Bill of 1866? Isn't everyone guaranteed equal protection under the law? Well, it turns out the all-white judges, juries, lawyers, and police officers weren't really concerned with enforcing those laws at the state and local levels. So African-Americans were kept from jobs, from schools, from voting, from restaurants and streetcars and parks. But there was one place that was all theirs. In many cases, the most educated person in the community was the black preacher. And the place where people could gather in large groups to uh, hear um, the black preacher and to gather for social, around social justice issues was the black church. That's Reverend Frances Draper. She goes by Tony. She's John Murphy's great granddaughter. We'll hear more from her later. For now, here's Dennis Halpin again, continuing our introduction to the Black Church. It's an organizing center. Um, oftentimes, um, African Americans are using the church for community organizing, for um, community uplift programs. It provides a degree of cover um, and safety for activists during this period. And Black women actually become pretty expert in using the church as a way of, of running a number of different community organizations and community uplift programs through the church. So 
it's hard to, to underestimate the, the role of the Black church in this period. The Black church was, and is today, the heart of the community. Whether Baptist, Methodist, or Episcopal, out of the church came a new generation of more radical activists in Baltimore. After experiencing the horrors of enslavement in their youth, they moved to the city to make a change. They knew they couldn't rely on partisan politics and racist politicians. Instead, they looked to an earlier generation's style of protest, relying on acts of civil disobedience and legal challenges to fight discrimination. Although he wasn't the most visible member of this group, John Henry Murphy Sr. was certainly among the most influential. Murphy, while doing all sorts of jobs to support his family, was very involved in the AME Church, that's African Methodist Episcopal. He served as the district Sunday school superintendent for Hagerstown and wanted to unify all AME churches in the state. He started a newsletter, The Sunday School Helper, designed to share information and build connections. At the same time that Murphy was building a family and a life in Baltimore, a man named Harvey Johnson was doing the same. Also born to enslaved parents, but in Virginia, Johnson arrives in Baltimore in 1872 to serve as pastor of Union Baptist Church. He brings along William Moncure Alexander, who becomes pastor of Baltimore's Sharon Baptist Church, which is still around today. These two are determined and disciplined. Johnson is focused on using the legal system to fight for civil rights supposedly guaranteed under law. Here's Dennis Halpin. I think he's looking at the situation and he recognizes, along with a number of others, especially of a, of a younger generation, um, that politics isn't going to happen for them, that they have to find some other avenue to affect change. And for them, that avenue becomes the legal system. Johnson is adamant that Black people are represented by Black people. His first major victory is getting a Black man, Everett Waring, admitted to the Maryland bar in 1885. That means he's the first Black lawyer in the state. Johnson also fights to overturn what's known as the Bastardy Law which basically says that white women can get child support, but black women can't. He also helps his parishioners sue after being put in filthy colored accommodations on a steamship after they paid for first class. This was one of the first court cases attacking Jim Crow. Johnson's friend, William Moncure Alexander, he's a veteran protester. He's focused on education and segregation, sponsoring many lawsuits to reverse segregation laws. He fought for and won Baltimore's first black high school, Frederick Douglass. Alexander was influenced by the work and words of a man named T. Thomas Fortune. He knew the Black community needed a strong voice to mount a counter-narrative, and the press was the way to do it. The white press certainly wasn't doing them any favors. Here's Dennis Halpin. So with the white press, the Baltimore Sun is, is kind of the flagship of the city, certainly. It's the most well-known. It's a paper that... Um, supported at least a limited degree of black rights so for instance when harvey johnson is able to to get um, a black attorney um, admitted to the, the baltimore bar they they celebrate the decision it kind of becomes a marker of progress for the city that it's they've kind of transcended their their racist past um you know but all of the white papers i would say that each of them they're unfriendly to African-Americans in degrees. None of them ever really fully champion racial equality. And for things like lynching, they very much side with the lynch mob. So anytime you see uh, African-Americans accused of, of crimes or of rape, they're, they're going to side with the lynch mob on this. 
By the 1890s, the Baltimore Sun really flips. It becomes a party that is uh, now overtly racist and kind of racist full time at this point. The Sun begins pushing the narrative that African-Americans are predisposed to crime. This is very popular around this time. They really overplay charges of African-Americans being involved in street-level crimes and how they're making the streets unsafe for white people, but especially for white women. Here's Dennis Halpin again. You have papers like the Cleveland Gazette, the Washington Bee, are all kind of formed in this era. And they're providing a nice counterbalance to these papers like The Sun that are advancing these really racist ideas. So for Black Baltimoreans, we know that they had access to T. Thomas Fortune's New York Age. It was the largest Black newspaper of its time, a very militant activist newspaper. T. Thomas Fortune had a strong editorial voice. He's somebody that's calling for citizens to fight racial inequality, to, for African-Americans to form some of the first civil rights organizations in the country. Black Baltimoreans also founded a number of newspapers in the 1880s. So you'd have a number of them kind of come up and then they would last a couple of years and they would die. When we get to the 1890s, when we have the Afro formed, it, it really becomes a stabilizing force in this period. The Afro newspaper, short for the Afro-American, was founded by William Moncure Alexander from Sharon Baptist Church in 1892, the pastor who was a major education advocate. The paper gave him and his activist clergy friends a platform for their protest work. It also gave them an income. The Afro-American came out every Saturday. It sold for three cents a copy and was hand-delivered to subscribers for 50 cents a year. Alas, it was not meant to be. A business bought the Afro-American in 1895, and that company went into receivership in 1896. The bankrupt firm offered to sell the Afro's printing presses for $3,000. Someone bought them, and then they failed too. The presses in the name went to auction yet again. And guess who bought them for the low bargain basement price of $200? John H. Murphy Sr., Civil War veteran, father of 10, lover of laughter. At this point, it's 1897, and John H. Murphy Sr. is 56 years old. He's still every bit the hustler. His most recent job was managing the printing press of the Afro-American paper. So when it goes out of business, he's out of a job. But he knows the machines and he knows the business. Perhaps equally as important, he knows the importance of the paper to his community. See, John Murphy, he's got his own activist streak. He's part of this group of clergy and lay people from the churches who are leading the fight in the courts. He knows that without the right judges, they'll never win cases. He sees an opportunity in 1882 when four out of five seats on the state's Supreme Court open up. This was their chance to reshape the court. In making his argument to voters, he cites three recent lynchings where white murderers went unpunished. He said at the time, we do not ask for any special laws, simply the same self-justice which will send a colored man and a white man to the House of Corrections for similar offenses, not the law which gives a Negro five years in the penitentiary for snatching a lady's pocketbook and tells the white men to continue killing Negroes. He and a group of ministers formed an independent ticket of judges. Their biracial coalition, a collection of African-Americans, white Republicans, and disaffected Democrats, succeeded in remaking the Supreme Bench, albeit temporarily. All this time, Murphy has been publishing The Sunday School Helper, 
and he's made a friend named George Bragg, an Episcopal priest, who naturally also runs a number of newspapers. If you haven't figured it out yet, you need to be a pastor and you need to have a newspaper. George Bragg is the one who gets Murphy the job running the Afro-American printing department, and Murphy does an outstanding job. It becomes the most profitable arm of the company. So when he gets the chance, John Murphy borrows $200 from his wife and buys the printing presses and the name for himself. He publishes the first edition as J.H. Murphy Publisher on March 27, 1897. His friend George Bragg leads the editorial side, and Murphy leads the business side. Was this a good decision? Not only had this very paper failed a few times already, but based on published reports, as little as 3% of African Americans in Baltimore were literate in 1897. As in, able to read a newspaper. Baltimore was known as a graveyard of black newspapers. Investing in a paper was a risky business. Here's great-great-granddaughter Savannah Wood again. So for him, it was sort of do or die. It's like, it's not a hobby. I'm changing course. This is what I'm doing going forward. I have mouths to feed and we need this to be successful. His community needed him to be successful too. It's time for another monumental moment, Plessy versus Ferguson. For a hot minute, things were more hopeful in Baltimore. While the Democratic Party largely dominated city and state politics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in 1895, Baltimore elected a Republican mayor and governor for the first time since 1867. Republican candidates for city council also overtook Democratic candidates in an overwhelming 17 of the city's 22 wards. Still, Republicans refused to acknowledge and include African Americans in governing. Even worse, the Supreme Court's ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation under the separate but equal doctrine. The case stemmed from an 1892 incident in which African American train passenger Homer Plessy refused to sit in the car for blacks. Plessy said that his constitutional rights were violated, but the Supreme Court said it's legal to distinguish between whites and blacks. As a result, restrictive Jim Crow legislation and separate public accommodations based on race became even more commonplace. In Baltimore, Democrats were not going to take their 1895 losses sitting down. Running on a slogan of Baltimore is a white man's city, Democrat and Confederate veteran Thomas Hayes was elected mayor in 1899. His campaign centered on fighting, quote-unquote, Negro domination, and the Baltimore Sun was right there to support him. Things went from bad to worse at the state level, too. Emboldened by Plessy v. Ferguson, in 1904, Maryland passed a measure mandating racially segregated railroad coaches, and in 1908, extended the law to include electric trolley lines and steamboats. So now it wasn't just bad policy— it was law. In the face of these new challenges, residents organized to fight back wherever they could. Baltimore's churches, political clubs, and civic organizations spoke out against the onslaught of attacks on their equal rights. Newspapers could really help or hurt. When it came to the Afro-American, Murphy and Bragg didn't just write about the action, they made the action. Here's Dennis Halpin. So it's a newspaper that's providing that counterbalance, but it's also a newspaper that, and we see this with the, the voting rights stuff in particular and, and the segregation problems in the 1910s, it becomes both a, a source of information, an editorial voice, but it also becomes an organizing force. 
On January 23, 1904, the Afro-American published an urgent editorial. On next Tuesday morning at 12 noon in Old Bethel Church, a grand mass meeting of extraordinary and far-reaching importance will be held. You see advertisements by Black churches saying, we're going to have a rally against disfranchisement on this date. Come out, show your support. At the top of the episode, we learned about violence and intimidation to suppress voting. Well, that wasn't enough. In 1893 and 1894, Congress repealed the laws that enforced the 15th Amendment. Now, it was totally up to states whether or not they enforced it. By the turn of the 20th century, many Southern states moved from voter suppression to constitutional means of suppressing the Black vote. In fact, between 1890 and 1910, 11 Southern states disenfranchised Black voters. Maryland Democrats jumped on the bandwagon. It was called the Poe Amendment named for its author, the dean of the University of Maryland Law School, John Prentice Poe. With the amendment, Democrats sought to revise the state constitution in what one historian called the most lengthy and complex disfranchising plan ever seriously considered in the United States. The amendment required all voters to prove they had a male descendant eligible to vote in 1869. You know, when only white people could vote. But that expired after two years. Fun fact, that's literally the meaning of the term grandfather clause. Otherwise, a voter was required to pass a literacy test, have two years' worth of tax receipts for $500 of real or personal property, and complete a form that required one's name, age, date, and place of birth, residence for up to two years prior, names of employers, jurisdiction in which they'd last cast a ballot, the full names of the President of the United States, the Governor of Maryland, a U.S. Supreme Court Justice, a Maryland Court of Appeals Justice, the Mayor of Baltimore, and the Commissioner of his county. The Afro-American dubbed it the Negro Humiliation Act. But on January 23, 1904, an estimated 400 Black Baltimoreans responded to the newspaper's call and formed the Suffrage League at Bethel Church. Led by Harvey Johnson, the guy with the court cases, William Moncure Alexander, the very first Afro publisher, and George Bragg, John Murphy's partner at the Afro. The church became the heart of the resistance. A month later, on February 28th, 13 churches launched a coordinated assault on Jim Crow and their Sunday sermons. This really fired people up. Resistance movements took shape across the state, spanning 10 counties. I don't think it's any surprise that when the Maryland state government tried to disenfranchise Black men and beginning in the early 1900s, it's the church that kind of activates very quickly and organizes people. So you start to see immediately both ministers coming together in different civil rights organizations, but also using the church as a space to hold meetings and to draw people together and to educate people about voting rights. Despite incredible efforts to keep them down, African-Americans during this time were building a rich culture and community. They enjoyed shopping, fashion, building homes, and traveling in the state and region. Churches organized conferences in the summer. They often held picnics in state parks. They ran political conventions and societies. And the Afro was at the center of it all. John Murphy, as a powerful publisher and influencer, represented the concerns of his community broadly. He wasn't just a faceless voice in print. He was a visible presence and representation of his race everywhere. And he shaped how they used their collective power. In 1904, Murphy called for a boycott of railroads and steamships operating in Maryland. He knew that Black travelers spent at least $200,000 a summer. If they kept their money in their pockets, it would put pressure on corporations 
to use their influence and money to elect people who would repeal Jim Crow laws. Despite the success of the boycotts, the Poe Amendment passed in the state legislature. The next stop, a public vote to change the Constitution. Now, the future of the Black franchise was in the hands of everyday citizens. This time, the Afro editors encouraged women, who often controlled much of the household spending, to think very carefully about where they spent their money. The paper urged Black women to find out how white store owners intended to vote and act accordingly. And they did. They boycotted retail establishments run by families planning to vote for the Poe Amendment. Perhaps even more powerful, Black domestic workers organized a strike, walking out on any family in support of the Poe Amendment. By the eve of the election, an estimated 40% of homes in some areas were without help. White housekeepers, who typically managed a staff of Black domestic workers, told the newspaper, I think they're doing this on purpose to force us to vote against the amendment. You think? The Suffrage League also registered voters, getting more Black men registered than ever before. The Afro published weekly editorials saying, not only our suffrage, but our very liberties are at stake. First, vote yourself, and then make sure your neighbor votes. State officials tried everything they could to suppress voting, removing 5,500 voters from the lists, mostly Black. But Black voters found allegiance with foreign-born voters, who would also be challenged by the new laws. Ultimately, voters rejected the amendment by a nearly 34,000 vote margin. A resounding and historic defeat. The Afro wrote, Maryland was the first Southern state to give the Jim Crow law a Black eye. Of course, that wasn't the last time the Afro and the entire Black community had to organize to protect their right to vote. There was the Strauss Amendment in 1908, the Diggs Amendment in 1911. Then there was like 2020. As they say, same stuff, different day. But John Murphy and the Afro never stopped. Their resistance was a tireless daily observance. The Afro got very clever with its power. Running experiments to test how Black people were treated in transit and in retail department stores, and then publishing the results. They labeled stores that were kind to Black shoppers as orchids, and those unkind to Black shoppers as onions. Groups like the Domestic Workers Union could then decide to boycott the onions. The list included some of the largest department stores in the city and advertising clients of the Afro. 14 of them were labeled onions. Still, for years, the Afro persisted in its criticism at the risk of its revenue. Here's David Taft-Terry. He's an historian at Morgan State University. We can find lots of uh, ways in which the rise of the Afro-American and the rise of Jim Crow sort of track one another or more specifically, the Afro's ability to sustain itself and to guard against the onslaught on Black entrepreneurialism that Jim Crow was about, the, the ability of John Murphy to keep his business afloat and to see it prosper. Under John Murphy's leadership, the Afro grew. Murphy increased its circulation from 1900 to 1910 by over 1,000%. In 1913, Murphy was elected president of the National Negro Press Association. In 1915, the Afro-American had a circulation of 7,500 with subscriptions all over the U.S. and into Africa. By 1919, the Afro had the largest circulation of any black newspaper on the East Coast. Here's Savannah Wood. So he really put everything into it. In addition, nearly all of his 10 children worked for the newspaper. So it was really a family enterprise from day one. And I think, you know, 
that led to its success in many ways because there's such a clear connection between we we do this work and we get to eat <laughs> and understanding that this is part of um, a family legacy that everybody was working towards. John H. Murphy Sr., legendary businessman and race man, died in 1922. Here's Tony Draper, his great-granddaughter. See, my mother told me that she believes he died of a broken heart because his son, Dan, um, had died suddenly at a young age and it was in a way had broken his, broken his heart. Before he passed, he told his son Carl that he wanted him to take over as publisher. When John Murphy was thinking about succession, he said to Carl that if anything ever happens to me, or, you know, I die or retire, whatever, I want you to be the person in charge. And I have a job for each of your brothers. This one is going to be in charge of circulation, this one in charge of advertising. I mean, he, he said to Carl, these are the roles. Oh, and yeah, your five sisters, um, they don't have to work, but they have to get the exact same salary that you and your brothers get. So that's how the torch, I understand, um, was passed from John Murphy to Carl Murphy. So I set out to tell the story of John Murphy, but I quickly learned I couldn't stop there. Yes, John Murphy was where it started, but Carl Murphy was where it took flight. Carl Murphy was a Howard grad and a Harvard grad who taught German at Howard University. On the weekends, he would come over to Baltimore to help his father with the editorial duties of the Afro. He was 33 when he took the helm of the Afro in 1922. Here's David Taft Terry. He grew up uh, at the end of the 19th century in Baltimore when there was great energy in the city in terms of not only a black community that is growing and emerging from the shadow of slavery, but a black community that is striving to build its institutional and organizational infrastructure. The NAACP formed its Baltimore chapter in 1912. The organization experienced an early win in dismantling the city's segregated housing ordinance, but it was poorly managed and had lost its influence by the 1920s. The NAACP and the Afro had always worked closely together, and the national office basically begged Carl Murphy to take over the local branch as president. Murphy, as a young man, is coming along at a time when the notion of the blending of personal wealth and commitment to community are at its height. This is the age of the race man. This is the age of the new Negro. There is an expectation that what you do should not simply build to your personal benefit, but should also be a benefit to others. The National Association of Colored Women's Clubs and other women-led organizations had a motto, lifting as we climb, during this time period that really not only spoke to them individually, but if you were of that class, it was almost a social obligation that you had some way of demonstrating this commitment to the community. But the Murphy clan, as well as Carl Murphy himself, clearly took this to heart. Despite repeatedly declining to serve as president of the Baltimore chapter, in 1931, Murphy accepted an appointment to the national board of the NAACP. That next year, he attended the annual conference of the NAACP held in Washington, D.C. And it's safe to say his life was never the same. Murphy was emboldened by the ideas he heard. W.E.B. Du Bois advocated for a new grounding of the NAACP in the needs of the black masses instead of the black elite. And attorney Nathan Margold presented a landmark legal strategy to dismantle educational segregation. 
Carl Murphy was lit up. Here's David Taftari. So for people like Carl Murphy, the crime of Jim Crow was not simply the implicit insult and inference of second-class citizenship, but the crime of Jim Crow was that it didn't do what it said it would do. It separated, but never provided equal. For middle-class and working-class and even upper-class African-Americans like Murphy, you know, he's a taxpayer. Um, the idea that what he contributes does not re- provide for him the same equality as someone else who contributes the same, to say nothing of whites who contribute far, far less, was as much of an indictment that segregation was not about what it implied to be, but about base racism. Murphy was tired of paying taxes and seeing no benefit. He was tired of seeing working class and middle class African-Americans struggle to get a foothold. Margold, in his legal strategy, offered an offense. He said, let's prove that segregation provides separate but not equal opportunities. Since Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, the Supreme Court had never given an opinion on such a case. And looking for court-ordered equalization of education, Margold was really aiming far higher. He wanted to prove that separate but equal was fundamentally impossible, and with that revelation, destroy the racist foundation of segregation once and for all. Carl Murphy, he knew this playbook. He regularly refused to be Jim Crowed in his own life as a private citizen. He refused to be put in the smoking car. He refused to be moved mid-route on a train from D.C. to Pennsylvania. He got arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. Each time, he would sue, and the Afro would write about it. Through his own experience and Margold's strategy, he saw a chance to use the legal defense strategy in Maryland to force the state's hand. Here's David Taftari. There's a, a letter in the NAACP records at the Library of Congress from December of 1932, where Carl Murphy pledges to Walter White, who was then the head of the national NAACP, that they were going to start working on opening the University of Maryland because Maryland taxed black citizens but didn't give black citizens a public college that they could use and certainly not a public law school ultimately uh, they could use. The University of Maryland was the state's flagship public university. It was paid for by tax dollars coming out of the pockets of both white and black citizens. Yet the university only served white students. Plessy versus Ferguson required separate but equal, but there was none of that here. Murphy partnered with the local NAACP and it was on. The Afro headline held nothing back. Local NAACP to start fight on color bar and state-supported institutions. How's that for offense? In reaction to this declaration of war by a newspaper, the University of Maryland pressured the Maryland General Assembly to authorize a new scholarship fund for Black students. Known as the Out-of-State Scholarship Fund, it would provide money to Black students in Maryland to attend college somewhere, anywhere, out of state, that would actually admit them. Alternately, they could use the funding to attend Baltimore's Morgan College, Maryland's only four-year liberal arts school open to Black students currently run by the Methodist Church. Okay, so maybe this was fine for like a minute, but of course, the legislature never actually appropriated funds. So it was a scholarship fund in name only. Murphy saw this as an opportunity. His nephew's college roommate, a young man named Thurgood Marshall, had just graduated at the top of his class from Howard University Law and was looking for a way to establish himself. I think the normal and natural course 
in a world free of racism and segregation would have been to go to the University of Maryland Law School. That's where he wanted to go. But he never applied, and I think the thought in his mind was, they don't accept blacks. And travel the 40 miles back and forth from Baltimore to Washington because he couldn't afford to live here. This is a clip from Juan Williams, Thurgood Marshall's biographer. It's Charles Hamilton Houston, the dean of the law school, who quickly identifies him as the star student at Howard Law School and begins to push him and help him and helps him to get involved with cases outside of the law school that give Marshall an extraordinary experience in terms of what it means to do civil rights law in this period, gives him an understanding of the really broader social aspects of the law, tells him quite explicitly that if a lawyer is not a social uh, architect, he's a social parasite. Marshall joined his mentor, Howard University Law School Dean Charles Houston, and together they began to develop a case. They discovered a glaring hole in the University of Maryland's defense. The university charter had never been changed to require segregation. Despite decades of unfettered enforcement by whites running the school, they had never bothered to change the school's charter. Together with grassroots advocates, they designed an experiment. At least nine black students applied to the University of Maryland Law School. Unsurprisingly, they received a form letter stating that black students, no matter how qualified, were not considered for admission and that they should apply for the out-of-state scholarship. So they did. As they expected, they received letters stating that there were no actual funds for the fund. They handed the documentation of the fraud straight over to attorneys Houston and Marshall. Ultimately, the NAACP filed a suit on behalf of a student named Donald Gaines Murray, a native Baltimorean who had recently graduated from Amherst College and wanted to attend law school. He, too, applied to the law school and received the same form letters in response. The case was heard in August of 1934 by Judge Eugene O'Dunn. O'Dunn was a moderate. He had been known to be more fair on race than other judges, but he was still white and still an alum of University of Maryland Law School himself. On the day of the trial, the local NAACP packed the courtroom with well-dressed working-class and middle-class black citizens. Thurgood Marshall's parents proudly sat among them, excited to see their son's first big day in court. The real star, however, was Charles Houston, who interrogated witness after witness for the university, including the president and the dean of the law school. Houston somehow got the dean to say that he believed that ox carts for blacks could be made just as nice as train cars for whites, if it meant they could preserve Jim Crow. Houston revealed the ugliness and blatant bias underpinning the university's racist policies. Those black families in the gallery saw firsthand the product of their tax dollars. There was no separate and equal. The 14th Amendment required equal protection under law. But who was protecting them? Judge O'Dunn didn't even leave his bench to deliberate. He ruled that the out-of-state scholarship failed to uphold the state's 14th Amendment obligation, and that because it would be impossible to quickly organize a new, equal law school for black students, the school must admit Donald Murray in time for the fall term. This case had ripple effects throughout the state and the nation. Announcing the victory in the Afro, Carl Murphy placed a photo of the undergraduate department at the University of Maryland next to the headline, Applications are expected to enter this department next. Murphy's threat to desegregate College Park was not taken lightly. As a result, the state bought Morgan College and turned it into a public college for black students. 
There is a straight line between this case and future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall's most famous case, Brown v. Board of Education, in 1954. That landmark Supreme Court case finally ended legal segregation, but it didn't happen overnight. The Murray case spurred 20 years of picking apart Jim Crow case by case across the nation. Here's David Taft-Terry. That example is also taken nationwide. Uh, the first time the Supreme Court hears a similar case, a case from Missouri in 1938, is quite literally a carbon copy of the law school case in the University of Maryland. In fact, Maryland may have been the first case to go to the Supreme Court, except the state didn't want to pursue it beyond the appellate level because the victory was so certain. Carl Murphy didn't stop with his victory in 1934. He saw the fight for desegregation all the way through to the end. The NAACP's Spingarn Medal is their version of Person of the Year. Carl Murphy won the Spingarn Medal in 1955 for work he did in 1954, which is to say, if we are to take such people like Thurgood Marshall, for example, at their word, uh, much of the behind the scenes support, both in terms of financial support but also in terms of continued publication and editorial activism in support of what ultimately becomes Brown v. the Board of Education. At least those like Marshall reached out after the critical victory had been won in 1954, and the first person they thank in the most public way is Carl Murphy. Carl Murphy did it all. He took Morgan State College under his wing and helped to build it into the revered university it is today. He helped to dismantle segregation and he built the Afro into a national and international megaphone. Here's his granddaughter and current publisher of the Afro, Tony Draper. His father had said in the founding of the paper that he wanted to, to go from the, the weekly to the bi-weekly to the daily. He wanted the paper to grow in different ways. He thought it was going to be in frequency, but under Carl Murphy's leadership, it grew to 13 editions. And so you had two editions in Baltimore, two in Washington, New Jersey, New England, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, the national edition. And so it grew that way. At one time, the Afro under Carl Murphy employed um, nearly 300 people, had its own buildings, its own printing press. It's difficult to overstate the influence the Afro-American and the Murphys have had on Baltimore and the Black community more broadly. We could do an entire podcast just on the way the Afro helped to fight police brutality over decades. In a time when our media is under attack for subjectivity, it's enlightening to read the headlines and the stories of a paper that never had a choice but to take a stand on issues that matter. Here's Tony Draper again. And so the Carl Murphy legacy is yes around growth of the business, but the Carl Murphy legacy is also around a person who was passionate about social justice, passionate about civil rights, passionate about speaking out against injustices and wrongs, and passionate about joining with other organizations like the NAACP to make sure that the, the story was told. He was also a person short in stature. Carl Murphy could not have been taller than five feet two inches, but he was a giant uh, to a lot of people. And so, you know, different people came to see Carl Murphy. W.E.B. Du Bois lived around the corner. Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. So I think that his greatest legacy, besides being a very, very hard worker, caring a lot about the black community, 
he also was a convener of leadership uh, to work together on solutions, not just to discuss problems, and then advocate for what he believed in the pages of the Afro. If you feel like this story is ripped from today's headlines, you're not alone. Voter suppression, mob violence, double standards and policing, unequal justice, and institutional racism, it's all here. But so is the Afro. Six generations later, the Murphy family still runs the paper. John Murphy's great-great-granddaughter, Savannah Wood, she's the Afro's archivist today. Here's Tony Draper again. And he certainly wanted to become a trusted source of accurate reporting about the community beyond what you would see someplace else. Let me give an example. So when there, I think this is the same thing today. When there were lynchings as there were on the Eastern shore of Maryland, and I served on a panel with a reporter from the Baltimore Sun, we both talked about this and he said, you know, the Sun did the story as they should have about what was happening. But the Afro sat down at the kitchen table with the mother of the, the young man who had been lynched. And she felt comfortable, as people do today, talking to us about what it felt like, what it was really like. And it doesn't mean that everything's feel good, and doesn't mean that everything is what we consider to be a good news story. I'm not saying that at all, because there are some things that we have to report on. But we're not out to crush people. We're out to lift up the community. I think about the young people in the Baltimore City Public Schools and wondering if the trajectory for some of our young people would change dramatically if they really understood where, where they come from. And to understand that our history didn't start with Martin Luther King Jr. Great man, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a great man, but our history as a people did not start there. It started long before that and will continue long after that. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonis, with sound design, mixing, and editing by Chloe Vantel. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. I'd like to thank Tony Draper and Savannah Wood from The Afro. Dennis Halpin's book is A Brotherhood of Liberty, and David Taft-Terry's book is The Struggle and the Urban South. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. See you next time.